Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Kenya's electoral body fails to meet with political leaders and pressure mounts on Myanmar to end violence against Rohingya people. In economics news, African Development Bank launches a plan to boost agriculture and in sports news, a FIFA World Cup ticket sale starts on, on Thursday. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Electoral Commission says it has started voter registration in the turbulent Kasai province where thousands have been killed in fighting in the past year. Commission spokesperson Jean-Pierre Kalamba says the delay in registration means a presidential election will not be possible this year, defying an agreement reached earlier with the opposition to hold the vote this year. Voters also in the DRC have already begun registration for the election that was meant to take place last November. The opposition has accused President Joseph Kabila of delaying the vote to stay in power. Lawmakers in Togo have met in Parliament after days of anti-government protests, but constitutional reform was left off the agenda. Opposition party supporters had hoped that changes to the political system would be discussed after the government proposed a bill on the subject last week. The only topic for debate was the National Assembly's administrative budget for 2018. Last week, hundreds of thousands took to the streets of the capital, Lomé, and cities across the country against President and for Nyasingbe and his family's 50 years in power. The President of the Central African Republic, Faustin Akash Doré, has sacked his Defence Minister, Levi Akite. A presidential statement has not said if the minister's dismissal is linked to ethnic and sectarian unrest. The security situation in the country appears to be spinning further out of control. The BBC's Ben Lowens has more. Yakete took a leading role in the conflict which broke out after a coup in the CAR four years ago. His militia group, mostly Christians, was pitted against mainly Muslim rebels. This year a range of militias have continued fighting each other and also attacking humanitarian workers. According to the UN, at least 25 civilians died in clashes this month. Thousands of people have been forced from their homes. The SADC Troika is expected to hold an urgent meeting in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, on Friday. This follows the assassination of the head of the army in the Mountain Kingdom last week. Lieutenant Hoantle Mutsumuto was assassinated by two army officials at the military barracks in the capital, Maseru. The SADC fact-finding team that went to Lesotho is expected to brief the Troika on the matter. 
And finally, the Venezuelan opposition has refused to take part in direct talks with President Nicolas Maduro's government in the Dominican Republic. The opposition coalition says it will not enter talks brokered by the former Spanish Prime Minister until the government agrees to meet a number of demands, including addressing the country's humanitarian crisis and releasing all political prisoners. Maduro says he welcomes the opportunity for a day of dialogue. I want to announce that I accept this invitation for a new day of talks and that I have been promoting dialogue all along as the former Spanish Prime Minister Zapatero and the President and Foreign Minister of the Dominican Republic all know well. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Kenya's Electoral Commission has failed to meet top officials from President Uhuru Kenyatta's party and Raila Odinga's party as planned. The commission was expected to brief the two sides on the election timetable. This development coincided with the official opening of Kenya's new parliament by Kenyatta, despite the absence of opposition members of parliament. James Shimanyula reports. The eagerly awaited meeting between Kenya's Electoral Commission and President Kenyatta as well as opposition leader Raila Odinga failed to take place when the opposition accused Kenyatta's representatives of arriving late. The Electoral Commission is to set a new date for the two rival political giants to meet. As the meeting aborted, President Kenyatta officially opened the 12th Parliament and reflected on the October 17th fresh election. We still have to undertake a fresh presidential election following the verdict of the Supreme Court. I strongly disagreed with that decision. I accepted it because of my respect for our Constitution and its institutions. Kenyatta flashed back to August the 8th general election, which saw his ruling party jubilee win the majority seats in the parliament, governors in counties and senators in the Senate. The elections that we held on the 8th of August, the swearing-in of governors, members of the Senate and National Assembly, as well as our county assemblies, the verdict of the Supreme Court, the call for fresh elections on the 17th of October. With all this in mind, it must be clear that the third term of a president is embedded until a new one is sworn in. Kenyatta was proud to tell parliamentarians and senators that the Kenyan government is still in place despite, as he put it, political noises at campaign rallies. No matter the political noises that are often loudest during elections. I want to assure every single Kenyan and the world that every arm of government is in place and operational. Let no one for a single moment envision that there is a void. There is no lacuna. Kenya is progressing along the path drawn for it by our constitution. The Kenyan leader had a strong appeal to the country's political leaders. I urge all political leaders to avoid engaging in divisive and destructive politics that have no place in a modern Kenya. For my part, 
I know that my most serious obligation is to sustain and protect the peace and security of all our people without exemption. We are now headed into a fresh presidential election that our electoral commission has scheduled for the 17th of October. The Kenyan people will again affirm their choice of who they want to serve as their president. Meanwhile, Moses Kuria, a member of parliament in President Uru Kenyatta's ruling political party, and Johnston Mudama, his counterpart in the opposition led by Raila Odinga, have appeared in a Nairobi court and denied charges of making hate speeches. Their case was set for hearing on the 21st of January next year. They have been released on cash bail pending appearance in court for hearing of their case. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Two international human rights organizations have labeled as shameful the lack of urgency in the UN Security Council regarding the situation of Myanmar's Rohingya Muslim Muslim population. Around 370,000 of the country's ethnic minority have fled the western state of Rakhine to Bangladesh after a government crackdown in response to Rohingya insurgents attacking police posts in late August that left about a dozen officers dead. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have slammed the Council's proposed closed-door session on Myanmar, scheduled for this week after the UN's human rights chief labelled the situation as appearing to be a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Shown Bryce Peace reports from the UN in New York. Observers are calling it a sea of human misery as thousands upon thousands stream across the border from Myanmar to Bangladesh after what human rights activists have called a campaign of widespread and systematic violence against the Rohingya. Lou Chabano is the UN Director for Human Rights Watch. This is not what it was created for. The Security Council is supposed to be the garden of international peace and security. This is an international peace and security crisis. It's a nightmare. People are dying. There's destruction. There is no excuse for them to continue sitting on their hands. And the United Kingdom, the pen holder, needs to take charge of this. They've documented abuses that include the torching of homes and the burning of entire villages, with widespread massacres and rape by security forces, in what is now viewed as a campaign of collective punishment. Amnesty International's Tirana Hassan is working on the Bangladesh side of the border, interviewing victims who have fled the violence. It really is a, a sea of human misery, to be honest with you. And you know, I tend not to be too melodramatic, but this is really something that is somewhat unprecedented um, in terms of the level of violence that we've been seeing uh, targeting the Rohingya. Um, you know, when we got here, when I got here a week ago. And when I look at what I'm seeing today, it's honestly what ha- it's like watching a crisis unfold, but, you know, at speed 10. As Myanmar's de facto leader, Nobel laureate Do Aung San Suu Kyi is increasingly criticized for her silence, with fellow laureate Archbishop Desmond Tutu writing an open letter urging her to speak up. Human Rights Watch's Lou Charbonneau. We've heard things here in New York and out of London about uh, the de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, uh, great qualities 
Well, we're not seeing anything like that here. And any worries about uh, uh, the Security Council meeting openly that it might upset some kind of backstage process to deal with this crisis, we have no evidence that there is such a process there that anyone's trying to deal with it. They don't need to walk on eggshells. There, there doesn't seem to be any sort of process that they're going to upset. Amnesty's Tarana Hassan believes that despite a closed-door meeting 12 days ago by the Security Council, they've not demonstrated a level of urgency that reflects the gravity of the situation on the ground. It is not a couple of bad units. This is widespread and systematic. We, there are patterns of emerging. Um, there is burning on a massive scale. And while the government of Myanmar continues to want to justify this um, campaign, and it is a campaign that is targeting the Rohingya as a counterinsurgency operation, it is absolutely not. And the evidence points to the fact that, you know, this is a form of collective punishment in the aftermath of the 25th of August when Rohingya insurgents did attack a number of police posts, killing, I think, about approximately a dozen security uh, officials. The council will meet in close session Wednesday on the subject, but it's unclear what kind of product members will emerge with, if anything at all. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, has told the council that their collective engagement will be crucial to prevent further suffering, while the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Raad Al-Hussein, criticised the government of Myanmar for what he called a clearly disproportionate response without regard for the basic principles of international law. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease. The Under-Secretary-General of the newly created UN Counterterrorism Office believes that geographical balance and gender equality are prerequisites for the success of the unit. Vladimir Voronkov was appointed by the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres in June after the General Assembly approved the establishment of a new office to help member states implement the organization's global counterterrorism strategy with 30 staff, 70% of whom are women from 25 countries. Voronkov said the future for the unit looked promising. UN Radio's Anne Thomas asked Voronkov how his previous experience as Russian permanent representative in Vienna will help him in his new role. I spent in Vienna about six years and I think it's a really very important experience because Vienna platform comprises of about 20 international organizations so the agenda of this organization is very different and each ambassador who is working here in Vienna should accommodate himself to these different tasks on different platforms. So I think this experience to switch on different topics, the capability to agree on very sensitive issues is a very good prerequisite for the successful work in New York. Of course, uh, New York is a different uh, uh, is a different organization, New York Organization of the United Nations. But again, if I manage to take together with me a piece of Vienna spirit, so-called and famous, because Vienna spirit is something which uh, helps to unite, which helps to agree on something, which uh, helps to reach a compromise on even very difficult issues, it would be great because 
I think that uh, working in New York, you should be very concentrated on finding of the final result and spirit of compromise, which means Vienna spirit is really very important. And how do you think the new office, the counter-terrorism office, will work with the various entities here in, in Vienna that are, are concerned with counter-terrorism work? There is a very strong unit uh, dealing with counter-terrorism agenda inside UNODC. Uh, they are working very well, speaking about the results of these activities, because they are implementing very important projects uh, connected with prevention of radicalization in prisons, with, uh, you know, border regimes and so on and so forth. So it's very practical contribution to uh, fight against terrorism, and I think our cooperation with the office will continue in a very good manner as it is now. So what do you think are the, the greatest challenges and the greatest opportunities uh, in your new job? So I think very important is to have uh, effective unit which comprises of many countries, and this is the case. And now in this uh, office for counter-terrorism, it's about 30 persons from 25 countries, and I think this geographical balance is very important, speaking about the possibility of enhancing of the stuff. The second very important issue I would like to raise that we have a real gender balance inside this unit because, uh, speaking about 30 persons, about 70 percent of uh, the personnel of the unit is 70 uh, 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 percent are ladies. So I think it's, again, very good uh, and uh, promising uh, for future because gender factor, gender equality is one of the major, uh, major uh, prerequisites for very successful work of the unit. That was Vladimir Voronkov, the Undersecretary-General of the newly created UN Counterterrorism Office, speaking to Anne Thomas. 45 days to go to the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo. Hashtag the year of Oliver Tambo. Oliver Tambo served as president of the ruling African National Congress Party's mission in exile from 1960 and later as its president from 1977 until 1990. Tambo also served as the national chairperson of the African National Congress until his death in 1993. Let's go back in time to today in 1985. The World Health Organization declares AIDS a worldwide epidemic. That's today in history in the year 1985. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives.
It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says the National Development Plan will remain an empty promise if it is not linked to the national budget plans. The President was speaking in Cape Town last night on the fifth anniversary of this blueprint document. Lulama Magia reports. President Jacob Zuma first paid tribute to the late black consciousness leader Steve Miko, who died on 12 September 1977 in police custody. Steve Miko and other martyrs of a liberation struggle paid the ultimate price and made a supreme sacrifice so that all of us could live in a free and democratic society that we enjoy today. He then focused on the National Development Plan. The plan was adopted by all political parties represented in the National Assembly in 2012. President Zuma says there are some gains made since the implementation of the National Development Plan. He has mentioned, among others, an increase in life expectancy as well as enrollment of children in schools. He, however, says there are some challenges, especially in rural areas. The president says the NTP must be linked to the national budget plans. Cabinet has directed the Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation to work with the economic cluster of government departments to ensure that there is alignment between the priorities in the National Development Plan and the budget. This is an important step because the National Development Plan will remain an empty promise as long as its noble goals are not meshed with the budget commitments. He also mentioned the key priority areas of this blueprint document. Government has turned the NDP into a five-year implementation plan, the medium-term strategic framework. The current MTSF 2014 to 2019 has 14 outcomes which include education, health, safety and security, inclusive economic growth, job creation, infrastructure development, nation building and social cohesion and social cohesion amongst others. The government has adopted the National Development Plan as its plan to eliminate poverty and reduce inequality by 2030. Lula Mamaika in Cape Town. Let's go back in time to today in 1989. Archbishop Desmond Tutu led an anti-apartheid march with 30,000 estimated participants in Cape Town. That's today in history in the year 1989. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. 
from an African perspective. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. A former premier of South Africa's Guazul-Natal province, Senzum Kunu, has welcomed the Peter Maritzburg High Court decision that declared the 25th Provincial ANC Conference unlawful. Mkunu was speaking at a at Tongat, north of Durban, at the Makuli Ndwandwe Memorial Lecture. Ndwandwe was a Satu member. Mkunu says the court decision gives them an opportunity as members of the African National Congress to rectify mistakes committed by the previous leaders. He says it gives them an opportunity for introspection and to promote unity in the organization. Kalesak Mbenze reports. The Peter Marisberg High Court decision was welcomed by ANC affiliate Satu in Natal. And the former Premier of Natal Senzo Mkunu, also joined Satu members by welcoming the decision. Mkunu says the decision is the right platform that the party should use to reconcile with one another. We welcome the decision of the High Court. We see no winner and no loser on this matter. But uh, we see an opportunity to take a very intensive relook at ourselves and say to ourselves, is it not time to move away from the path that took us to that conference, which has resulted into where we are today, and take a totally different path so that at the end of the day, we are seen to be pursuing the interests of the ANC and the ANC alone. Kunu says the PEC of the party can appeal if they like, but it will not solve problems of the ANC. If the PEC decides to appeal the case, it, it will be their decision. Personal, I will not uh, have anything to do with it. And I think whether appeal or no appeal, it does not prevent us as ANC members to be sober and really settle down and decide what exactly will build the ANC in this province. If we think that the appeal will build the ANC, so be it. But we think there is something bigger than appealing that we can go for. NEC member Pekitale was part of the SATU meeting. He says it's embarrassing to be part of the NEC that took the wrong decision about the conference. It is embarrassing to go by member NEC at the present moment. For one reason, I was there in the meeting when we took the wrong decision that led to the problem we're facing here in this province in the ANC. I was in that meeting. I'm not going to say who said what, but collectively I agree we took a wrong decision and we surrendered the leadership of the ANC to the court. Indeed, the court this morning, and they said, that conference was unlawful and illegal and is nullified. Tello also want NC members to refrain from being arrogant and corrupt. This is a serious and a painful matter, comrade. Must just give us a lesson to say, let's come together. Let's stop being arrogant and let's stop create gangsterism within the ANC where some of us would believe that ANC belongs to us.
This arrogance of saying when Nabangan Bako, Yenzo Holu ANC, Abanabad, they can go to hell. There is no hell here. I'm Kalasa Kampense, interpret. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1997. A funeral services were held in Calcutta, India for Nobel Peace Laureate Mother Teresa. That's today in history in the year 1997. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunya Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the Democratic Republic of Congo's Electoral Commission says it has started voter registration in the turbulent Kasai province where thousands have been killed in fighting in the past year. The SADC Troika is expected to hold an urgent meeting in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, on Friday after the assassination of the head of the army in the Mountain Kingdom last week. And more than 370,000 refugees have now arrived in Bangladesh after fleeing violence in neighboring Myanmar in recent days. Those are the stories making headlines. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, 
Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Malawi has lost documents related to the ongoing Lake Malawi dispute between Malawi and Tanzania. The ministry's principal secretary, Isaac Munlo, told Parliament about the missing documents and attributed it to a chaotic filing system of documents and lack of data-keeping systems. For the latest on this issue, we are now joined on the line from Malawi's commercial hub by our reporter, George Mango. George, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Now, what are these papers mainly for in the Lake Malawi wrangle with Tanzania? Uh, a very good morning to you. Uh, what uh, these papers entail, these papers that uh, the Lord's government uh, confirmed, entail that Malawi will not have any track record as to what kind of negotiations they've had with the Tanzanian ex colleagues, uh, uh, dating back to 2012 when this issue became a critical issue under the leadership of uh, President, uh, former President Louis Banda. So, no document has been indeed uh, found, so they are yet to uh, check as to how to solicit this kind of uh, document. Now, George, how did they lose the documentation? I, um, I saw that the ministry, minister has said, or uh, the principal secretary of the minister has said that uh, it is uh, due to the systems or data-keeping systems or lack thereof. Yeah, basically, if it comes to this document, they were being kept in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the other, you know, sections of uh, the uh, government system did at Capitol Hill. But uh, definitely what did uh, transpire is the fact that uh, uh, some technical issues to do with how to file. The filing system was not okay. That is what uh, the government authorities did say. But still, they are saying that they are banking hopes on uh, the United Kingdom and then Germany because these 
have some documents dating back to the 1890 uh, when there was that original treaty defining the fact that Malari owns the whole lake. So currently it's the poor fighting issue and also working on modernity as to how to beat uh, uh, the official uh, who was relevant in terms of uh, doing the fighting of all these uh, lake Malari uh, border issue disputes. Now, George, let's speak about the issues going forward with regards to um, the mediation talks between Tanzania and Malawi on the Lake Malawi dispute. As you mentioned, this documentation dating back um, to many years ago where the UK and Germany, as you mentioned, um, were involved and have the documents in their filing systems. But in terms of the recent talks and um, recent agreements, what exactly is going to happen going forward? Is Tanzania are going to be able to assist Malawi in uh, furnishing them with uh, documentation or, or, or mediation uh, notes of what has already been discussed, what has already been tabled um, with regards to the talk, the recent talks that they've had. Uh, it, it's a very difficult situation for the Malawi authorities because definitely what it means one is the fact that uh, President uh, Peter. Metallica and then John Makofuri will not meet as scheduled that they have to meet and then have their uh, views set with regards to who owns the lake. But this definitely has been put on hold with this uh, you know, situation. And secondly, the other thing that is coming out clearly is the fact that uh, Malawi has to uh, work further uh, discussions with the, uh, the ministerial uh, officials from Tanzania and then Malawi. Why? Because they have to look at how to get, you know, the minutes of each and every, you know, uh, uh, discussion that they've had previously. So finding all those minutes and finding all those kind of documents, it's a challenge. And that is why uh, the, the, the ministry's uh, secretary uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that they will engage uh, the UK because UK were the colonial masters of Malawi, and Germany, on the other hand, on the on, on the other hand, did play a role in trying to mediate the, 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 the lake issue in the 1890s. So it's it's going to take a, a, a long time for them to come out clearly as to when to maybe start discussing again. But you know, the bottom line is that uh, Malawians are just you know not happy with the way these people have come out to say that they have lost all those documents. Of course, maybe uh, the, the spokesperson of the government. We seem to have lost uh, our Malawi uh, reporter there, George Mhango, who was giving us an update basically of um, the situation regarding the lost documents by Malawi's ministry um, where there were in part of um, ongoing mediation talks between Malawi and Tanzania with regards to um, the ownership or um, the ownership of the Lake Malawi, uh, which is a dispute that has been ongoing for a number of years now. And we're just trying to find out how these mediation talks would continue and uh, if uh, Tanzania would be able to assist Malawi in furnishing them uh, with uh, terms and, and negotiation notes of talks that have already taken place. We will try and get George back on the line just to um, conclude properly, if that's even possible. But uh, hopefully uh, he will be able to update us, if not on the show, on our sister shows uh, going on for the rest of the day. That was our reporter in Malawi, George Mango, giving us an update uh, from the commercial capital, Blantyre. Mm-hmm.
Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. An estimated 7 million people in South Africa are infected with HIV and around 1.7 million are unaware that they are living with the disease. Various studies indicate the fear of stigma and discrimination as a persistent barrier in voluntary testing. To address this, Doctors Without Borders or MSF recently conducted a Kyalija-based study offering self-testing kits to people who declined a clinical test with a trained counsellor. MSF's Dr. Laura Trevino says findings indicate that self-testing would encourage more people to know their HIV status. MSF, you know, has been working in Kailita for many years now, and despite all, all our efforts together with province and city to reach all those people that they don't know their status, we somehow have failed to reach all the people on need. And we know that especially when we talk about men and youth, are very hard to reach people. So we believe that in bring, bringing oral self-testing to the community or bringing oral self-testing being delivered at the health facilities could bridge that gap and we can be sure that we give access to people that otherwise don't have access to testing. That's why we believe that we should put everything that we have in our hands to assure that people are able to know their status and oral self-testing represents a very good tool to achieve that based on latest studies and many experiences that have been happening in many countries. Yes, speaking about Kailicha, I understand you conducted a study where you involved about 655 people who participated and these were people who had declined being tested by a, a counsellor in a clinic and instead you encouraged them to take the self-test. How exactly was the study conducted? Sure, so that study was performed in two sites in Kailicha, one in a wellness hub that is normally, you know, attended by young women that go for their family planning and in another site that's called Site B and this is a big health center uh, and this is attended by everybody, male and youth and women. Our activity is that we offer everybody the normal test and for those ones that refuse normal tests, then we offer the self-test. Mm. For those ones, we had like an 88% of people that accepted self-test that refused the normal one. So we teach them how to do it and how to interpret their results. And we give them the oral test and we told them, do it anytime that you want to do it. And we gave them an, a pictorial instruction for them to understand how to do it and how to interpret the results. Mm. Plus a cell phone in case that they wanted to ask any question when they were doing the, the test themselves. So what happened in the study is that um, at the same time we gave the test, 
we give them the chance to report the results free of charge through SMS. So we told them, once that you have done the test, please, if you are willing, send the report of the test to an SMS, it's free of charge, and then we will be able to trace you depending on the results. So we ask them for consent to be able to trace them later on in time. Mm. And all of them agreed to do that. Nobody had any problem on accepting to be traced or on accepting to send them the reports via SMS. So what we found out in the study is that among the people that accepted the self-test, 83% of them reported through SMS, what is incredibly high. Because we know like phone penetration in Kailicha is high. Many people have a phone. But we were not expecting that so many people will report the results back to us, you know, like in a voluntary basis. But 83% of people did report their results being positive or negative. And among all those ones, 7% of those were positive results. Mm. Yeah, so we had a 7% positivity rate among those people that reported the results. Mm. Of course, we don't know what happened with those people that didn't report it, and we are looking into it now. And then from those 7% of people, of patients, that reported a result, 41% of them, almost half of them, came back to the clinic for a confirmatory test. Now, Dr. Trevino, to add on that, what about the issue of counselling? Um, the normal process we are currently familiar with is that when you get to a health facility, you are first counselled before the test and after the test. Now, self-testing mm-hmm. takes away that crucial role of a counsellor. Should that not be a worry? Yes, I mean, look, for us, what we have been learning and through lots of experiences is that, you know, that counselling as it is currently is not so much needed. Mm. People know what, it's like when you go to do a pregnancy test, you mm. know, and you do a self-test yourself, you know what you are going to be doing and you know what are going to be the options of your results, positive or negative. And I think somehow we need to, to have the same approach for HIV testing. Mm. And that was Dr. Laura Trevino of Doctors Without Borders in South Africa speaking to Jane Rabutata. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Nuhoku. Good morning. The African Development Bank has launched a plan to boost agriculture industrialization across the continent. The new plan will see AFDB scale up a financial support for the production of crops with the highest potential to industrialize and support manufacturing in Africa. Top on the list is cassava, which, according to experts, could be used to produce ethanol for industrial use and other frequently utilized home products. The Bank of Namibia has reminded the public that it does not consider virtual currencies as legal tender in Namibia and virtual currencies are thus not considered equivalent to the Namibia dollar. Virtual currency, also known as virtual money, is a type of unregulated digital money which is not issued by the central bank. The bank says while virtual currencies are currently not regulated in Namibia, they are unsafe to unaware users who do not know of the risks they pose. The Bank of China Zambia is uh, POC is celebrating its uh, 20th anniversary of operation in Zambia this year 
and has set itself a mission of being a bridge between the People's Republic of China and Zambia. Established in 1997 in Lusaka with another branch in Kitwe, BOC is the first wholly subsidiary of BOC in Africa and the first Chinese financial institution in Africa. Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Trade, Industry and Cooperative, Aidan Mohamed, will issue a status report on Kenya's retail sector, even as the government tries to find answers to problems currently facing supermarkets. The meeting is part of the government's efforts to revive the retail sector, whose spending contributed 30% to the country's gross domestic product last year. Oil prices mixed, dampened by reports of rising U.S. crude stockpiles. International benchmark crude is down 13 American cents or 0.2% at 54.14 a barrel, having settled at 0.8% in the previous session. The difference between Brent and WTI, known as spread, rose by 11 cents to $5.41. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.97 in South Africa. It's at 9.97 in Botswana and at 9.25 in Zambia. 0.75 to the British pound, 0.83 to the euro. Gold $1,331, platinum $985 for dollars an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $54.12 a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko for Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English. Giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunye Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. As sports updates up next, let's figure it In this hour, we begin with rugby news. Springbok flank Yako Krill has been sent back home from New Zealand after suffering a shoulder injury in the 23-all draw against Australia in Perth. Krill will be the second player to return to South Africa after prop Kuni Oosthuizen suffered a broken arm on Saturday in Perth. Springbok wing Cardinal Skosan has admitted that the All Blacks are littered with special players in their team, but the Springboks focus won't be in individuals, but rather the entire team ahead of the Castle Lager Rugby Championship against the All Blacks in Albany on Saturday. Oh, the same, the same as Coach said earlier. You know, they're, they're special players. They're, they've got special players all around in the whole squad. So whoever plays, they're always going to have good players, quality players going out there. And I don't think you should focus on just one guy or three guys. You know, like I said earlier as well, it's a team effort at the end of the day. So if we cover all our bases as a team, you know, hopefully we can get the result on the weekend. Albany is situated in the north of the city of Auckland and has a big population of South African experts. But Scorsan doesn't think that will have any influence over the fact that 
It remains an away match for the Springboks and says it is always tough playing against the All Blacks anywhere in New Zealand. I think it's a, it's another game at the end of the day. You know, it's 80 minutes that we have to play. It's home or away. Yeah, obviously, it's if you're at home, you have a bit of a home ground advantage with the crowd being behind you. But we still are playing an away game. There's still New Zealand team in New Zealand, so it's still going to be a tough challenge for us to go out there, you know, and get the result. But we just need to do what we need to do on the weekend, and hopefully, we can get the result. In football news. Wales football's governing body FIFA has announced that ticket sales for the 2018 World Cup will begin on Thursday, nine months to the day that the tournament kicks off in Russia. FIFA Secretary General Fatima Samura says the ticketing system will give fans a fair chance to secure tickets for the 14th of June to the 15th of July extravaganza. The sales process has been divided into two phases. During the first period, which starts on Thursday and finishes on the 12th of October, fans will be able to submit their ticket applications. All applicants will be duly notified of the outcome of the applications before the second phase gets underway after the draw for the finals taking place on the 1st of December. The World Cup will be played at 12 venues in 11 Russian cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Sochi, Kazan, Saransk, Kaliningrad, Volgograd, Rostov-on-Don, Nizhny, Novgorod, Yekaterinburg, and Samara. And in local football, South African Premiership side Bloemfontein Celtic registered their first win of the 2017-2018 Amsterdam Premiership season, defeating Pulukwane City 2-1 at the old Pitamukaba Stadium in South Africa's Limpopo province last night. Celtic head coach Veselin Jelusish was a satisfied man. I am very satisfied with this victory, but overall I am satisfied with the commitment of our players because they work very hard to achieve this victory. Even in previous games, uh, we never uh, played to draw, but uh, it's happened. Of course, it is part of a football game, and we are very, very happy about everything what we uh, presented today. We had uh, three uh, quite uh, difficult games in three legs that we play, uh, and I think that we are picking four, and that uh, in next games we will achieve a more. Uh, we try always to improve on our practices, uh, to correct uh, mistakes and to do our best. Uh, but in the game, everything can happen. It is part of the game, not only technically, tactically, but uh, also emotionally sometimes. And finally, Olympic news. The International Olympic Committee will crown Paris and Los Angeles as hosts for the 2024 and 2028 Olympics in Lima today, delivering a welcome feel-good factor amid a gathering storm of corruption allegations. For the first time since the awarding of the 1984 Olympics, when only one city was in the race, the traditional frenzy of last-minute lobbying, politicking and smoothing will be strikingly absent in Lima. In a historic move, the IOC brokered an agreement that will see Paris handed the 2024 Games with Los Angeles awarded 2028, an outcome that all sides are declaring as victory in a win-win situation. IOC members will ratify the agreement following 25-minute presentation by Paris and Los Angeles, the last two cities left in the race for the 2024 Olympics. Los Angeles 2028 officials, meanwhile, insisted they are satisfied with a deal which means the Californian city will have to wait 11 more years before it stages the Olympics for the third time. That's your Sport News this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa tsoza Africa amuka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Kenya's electoral body fails to meet with political leaders and pressure mounts on Myanmar to end violence against Rohingya people. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producers Fisil Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57. You can also WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Angelique Kijo with a song title, Agora.